Well, I think there's a couple of interesting lessons here. One is that people don't even know about it today because it hasn't really been on the radar screen for for many years. But when you think about it, this is a very large scale problem. And these ecosystems were decimated uh, and the very, very large area, not as large as is impacting climate change, but you know, you're talking really massive areas of land. It was a massive deal. The uh, aerial extent of forest dieback and forest death in, in Europe and the US and Canada was vast, absolutely vast, and it was, it was a real, real problem. Today we're talking about something you've probably heard of, but if you were to explain it to someone, I doubt you could tell them exactly what it is. We're talking about acid rain. Now, when I hear the term acid rain, I immediately think of groundskeeper Willie from The Simpsons singing on the streets as the clothes on his back begin to get burnt off. I'm singing in the rain, I just singing in the rain, what a glorious feeling, ah, it burns like a Glasgow bikini wax. But that's not exactly what acid rain does. The first recorded acid rain events date back a couple of centuries, but it wasn't until the early 1970s, going through into the 80s, that laws were amended and new ones introduced to try and stop it. But today, along the northern US border in northern Europe and China, the effects of acid rain are still a problem. While the global community seems focused on dealing with climate change, and mind you, we're still struggling with the best way to do that, what's important about the story of acid rain is not only can it teach us how we can tackle global climate issues, but it can also tell us why we're so bad at it. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. So to start putting the pieces together, I wanted to know, was what happened to groundskeeper Willie and his clothes realistic? Well, it's, it's realistic in the sense that acid rain is acidic and it would tend to rot things, but it's not so acidic that it would do that to your clothes. That's Derek Emus, a professor of environmental sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. And so while The Simpsons were a little dramatic, they did get one thing right. Just before Willie's clothes are getting burnt off, you see three buildings letting out huge amounts of smoke from their chimneys. A steel mill, a smoke factory, and a daycare centre. I know, but you, you get the point. These sorts of emissions are where it all begins. If you burn coal, diesel, petrol, oil, then you release a lot of sulphates and nitrates into the air. These pollutants float upwards in the atmosphere and mix in with all the waters that help produce clouds. And when they're mixing, they form these acidic rains, which, when it's time to rain, drop back down on top of us. Now, sometimes this can occur naturally. Volcanoes can also release vast amounts of uh, sulphates, for example, so you can get natural acid rain events. But according to Derek, acid rain is predominantly a man-made phenomenon. And although it won't burn you to a crisp, it's still not exactly good for us, good for humans, or for the environment. And that's because of pH. 
Now, pH is a scale which will tell you how acidic a substance is. On this scale, 7 is neutral. Water has a pH of 7, for example. But acid rain has a lower pH. And on this scale, lower means that it's more acidic. To give you an idea, pH 6 is 10 times more acidic than pH 7. And pH 5 would be 100 times more acidic. And again, pH 4 is 1,000 times more acidic than pH 7. Depending on where the acid rain is formed, and also how dense the level of emissions are it's mixing with, acid rain typically sits between pH 5 and pH 4. But back in the heyday of acid rain... Some of the precipitation chemistry had pH values in the 3s and some extreme conditions in the 2s, so highly acidic conditions in the heyday of, of acid rain. That's Charles Driscoll. He's from Syracuse University in New York. He's pretty much the go-to acid rain guy. In these extremes of low pH acid rain, Charles says humans have been affected by this in the past. A lot of the particles that are in air that impact human function, so respiratory condition, and if they're poor air quality, that can result in um, cardiovascular problems. And it was these health concerns that had a lot of people worried particularly the United States government. In 1970, the first significant amendments were made to the Clean Air Act, putting massive restrictions on both state and federal governments with high-emitting industrial practices. Their focus to deal with acid rain was health-motivated. And people were not too concerned about the environment back then, but were concerned about human health. But there were other places who were more concerned about the environmental damage of acid rain, particularly Canada. During this time, Canada was also feeling the effects of acid rain pretty hard. But it wasn't all their fault. In fact, they started blaming the US for their acid rain problems. And this was due to the fact that... So the pollutants can move. Derek again. And this is this is a source was a source of contention between neighbouring countries. So when these pollutants float up into the atmosphere, they don't always stay in the same place. They travel with the wind patterns. So when it starts to rain, those pollutants could have travelled far distances and begin to rain down on somewhere far from where they were formed. And Canada was angry because of this. Well, as you might expect, uh, they were not too happy about the situation. There were a lot of there was a lot of rhetoric that went on at the time applying political pressure on the US. Amendments to the US Clean Air Act would continue well into the 1990s and a big part of that was because Canada was putting a lot of pressure on the states to try and do something about the problem. And for good reason. The Canadian landscape for the most part wasn't as well equipped to deal with acid rain as other parts in the US were. And a lot of that came down to their soil. Well, I guess this gets to the second part of the story, that not all regions are sensitive to acid rain. So if the soils are relatively rich, the nutrients within soils, the calcium and magnesium, can neutralize the acidity, and acid rain would not have uh, substantial environmental effects. But in more mountainous areas areas with very shallow soils that are derived from minerals like granite that are very difficult to break down, 
then the acidity is not neutralized completely. So acid rain is destructive due to its high concentrations of sulfate, which damages the soil and then can also strip important nutrients from trees. Derek again. It turns out it's the protons and the sulfate that is really bad for the foliage and for the roots. So the protons, that's what makes it acidic. When they get in the soil, they reduce the pH and that makes things like aluminium more soluble, which means the aluminium will move to the surface of roots and poison roots very quickly. But Charles says particularly the Appalachian Mountains that run along the northeastern part of the United States and also across Canada... The biggest concern in these areas was acid rain runoff, where acidic waters would flow down into lakes. So remember that stuff about pH and how water has a neutral pH of 7. In some areas, the pH level of the lake water went from pH 7 to pH 4, meaning it was a thousand times more acidic than it was meant to be. But what happens is there are additional chemical impacts. One of the most significant chemical impacts is that aluminum, which is really part of the backbone of soil, starts to dissolve when soils become acidic. So when the pH starts to go down below 6 to 5 and 4, the aluminum will dissolve from soil and it will get into lakes and streams. And aluminum is highly toxic to fish and aquatic organisms and also plants for that matter. This caused a chain reaction of things dying off in these ecosystems. First, the sensitive organisms would go, the mayflies, other insects, and then the fish, salmon, lake trout, which were very sensitive. Even, But even the most insensitive organism would ultimately succumb to extreme conditions. Towards the end of the 90s, the buzz around acid rain began to fizzle. Slowly, industry began to move away from coal-fired power stations, although not entirely. Natural gas and renewable energy research began to pop up for the first time, and also scrubbing technologies were developed that could scrape out some of the more harsh pollutants that were being emitted. The effects of acid rain seemed to go down environmental conditions began to improve, less reports of forest land damage. And soon the issue of acid rain seemed to float away. People slowly began to forget about it. But it didn't go away. Today, particularly in places like China, who, although only a few months ago suspended the construction of a whole group of new coal-fired power plants, still continue their relationship with coal there are still the occasional reports of acid rain incidents around the world, but it's not all doom and gloom. Along the Appalachian Mountains in the US and in Canada, a number of these areas have shown to in fact have somewhat recovered from these acid rain events. But something that nobody expected was that these acid rain-affected lands that were starting to recover could slow the effects of climate change. You'll find out how when we come back. What 
do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favorite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. Forest lands and lakes around the world devastated by acid rain back in the 70s and 80s didn't have to struggle too long. As laws were enforced to regulate the burning of fossil fuels, using the US as an example, we were able to temporarily put a plug in our environmental problems. But flash forward to today, climate change has a funny way of making us revisit our past miscalculations. However, as Charles Driscoll from Syracuse University explains, climate change has in fact opened up some interesting insights into acid rain recovery that no one would have anticipated. It's a complex process, but it really entails a reversal of all the things we've been talking about in this conversation. So it first starts with emission reductions. So there are legislative actions or maybe economic drivers that shift the use of fossil fuels. So recently in the U.S., we've shifted away from coal more towards renewables and natural gas. Part of that is due to these air quality concerns, but a lot of it is economics. Renewables are much more cost-effective. Natural gas, we have an abundance of natural gas. So And so with reductions, particularly in the use of coal and decreases in emissions of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide, we see decreases in concentrations in rainwater. And so we now start to see decreases in concentrations of sulfate and nitrate and decreases in acidity associated with the sulfate and nitrate in lakes and streams in these acid-impacted areas. So we're starting to see them recover and we're starting to see that the organisms that have been impacted are starting to come back. Their populations are increasing, their diversity is increasing. Uh, Now, there's an interesting aspect of this that we haven't discussed so far, and that has to do with natural organic matter. And so in the presence of acids, and remember we talked about aluminum, the inputs of acids in aluminum facilitate the removal of dissolved organic matter in water. Okay, what's that? So if you have a cup of tea, your tea bag imparts a certain color to water. And so that's indicative of the breakdown of natural organic matter, leaves and and materials, plant materials. And as they decompose, they release these organic compounds and they impart a color to water. So the inputs of acidity and the aluminum help remove that color. And so a very similar situation occurs in water treatment plants. People don't like to have drink colored water. So typically aluminum is added in the water treatment process to remove particles and also to remove color. So a similar process was occurring naturally. So as we've reversed these impacts of acid rain, We see decreases in acidity, we see decreases in aluminum, and so now we're starting to see that the color is coming back in these lakes. 
So what is significant about that? Well, this is a little complicated, but the color influences the heat budgets of lakes. So the color absorbs sunlight in lakes and doesn't allow for the sunlight to transfer down to deeper layers of lakes. So it's absorbed in the upper part of the lake, and that allows the lake to keep cold conditions in the lower part of the lake, which is critical to the survival of cold water fisheries. So not only have we seen a recovery in terms of the fisheries, particularly cold water fisheries, because of the acidity has been reduced, but the fact that the color is starting to come back, that helps maintain cold conditions, proper thermal conditions, and it also provides additional benefit because it helps mitigate against climate change. So like many areas of the world, we're seeing increases in temperature. And so with increases in temperature, that can potentially impair cold water fisheries. So this recovery mechanism has had a side benefit uh, to help mitigate against climate change some of these waters. So that, that was the, the crux of the article that we we're talking about. Is that only possible due to this recovery process, or would it have been the same if acid rain in this way hadn't affected these lake ecosystems in the first place? Well, that's a great question, and a lot of people argue that point. I personally think that the recovery of acid rain has partially driven this process, and I think there's a lot of empirical evidence to suggest that's the case. We see increases in pH, decreases in aluminum, and then increases in the color or the dissolved organic matter in lakes. But a lot of people, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this may be occurring, it could also be a byproduct of climate change. So as the air temperature warms, it will enhance the breakdown of plant material. And then also, at least in our area, I don't know about Sydney, but in, in upstate New York, we're getting wetter conditions. So one of the aspects of climate change is it's getting wetter. So there's more water moving through, flushing this organic matter from soil, increased temperatures help to break it down. And so it's thought to be a manifestation of climate change as well. So my, get, my best guess is it's probably both factors are contributing. What do you do with this information? Where do you kind of move forward? Because acid rain as, I guess, an environmental issue doesn't really stand in the same as it did 20, 30 years ago. But with these findings, what, what do you do with them? Well, I think there's a couple of interesting lessons here. One is that, you know, acid rain, people don't even know about it today because it hasn't really been on the radar screen for, for many years. But when you think about it, this is a very large-scale problem. You know, you're talking really massive areas of land when you consider the parts of the globe that were impacted by acid rain. So eastern U.S., large parts of central and northern Europe, and now in Asia, you know, the large parts of Asia, particularly in China, Southeast Asia, are clearly impacted by acid rain. And so I think it shows that we can, you know, work towards implementing a solution and we can see the positive benefits of that solution. It may take, it's taken several decades and we've got a ways to go, but we've seen remarkable changes over the last 15, 
years or so. So it shows that we are capable of understanding very large, complex problems, and the Earth system is very resilient. We can respond to these, or it can respond to these insults that we throw at it. The other thing that I think is interesting is that even though we separate out acid rain and climate change, and there's good reasons for that, they are interconnected. They're both largely driven by the burning of fossil fuels. If we reduce the burning of fossil fuels, not only will we combat climate change, but we will greatly improve air quality. And people care about air quality. They may not care about climate change because it plays out over such long periods of time and it's such a slow and gradual phenomena. But if we implemented uh, reductions in fossil fuel emissions, then there would be very demonstrable and profound air quality benefits, which would be immediate. And there would be you know, huge health benefits to any country that implemented these, uh, these changes. And they would be a local benefit. It would happen to that immediate area where the emissions were reduced. So I think that there are a lot of relevant, uh, relevant information here that we can think about for the future. Charles Driscoll, Professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Syracuse University in New York. That's all we have time for today on Think Sustainability. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to us. You can find us on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. If you want to find out more, you can head to 2SER.com. My name's Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.